And after this talk, as I mentioned to you yesterday, that I'm going off to Nonamara Center to give the Friday night talk. It's actually Friday already. And after the Friday night talk, uh, come straight back here. And I'll see you tomorrow morning. And in my place this evening, you are uh, blessed with having Ajahn Brahmali to interrogate your questions. And you can <laughs> ask them and see how he uh, does things. So anyway, I think we're close enough, Eileen? A few more, okay, we'll wait a little bit longer for those last stragglers to come in. And it was sometimes nice as a, as a monk in Thailand, because whenever you went anywhere, you were never late. Monks were never late. When the monks arrived, that was the correct time. <laughs> I kind of miss that these days. But nevertheless, you've got to care for other people as well. Okay, one of the stories that just comes to my mind about lateness, a true story. Because this gentleman came and told me this story over in the monks' monasteries many years ago. You know, he was just a businessman and he was reasonably successful, worked very hard. But then an event happened in Mumbai which changed his whole life. And that's why he came to see me and told me about it. It's one of these stories where, you know, he'd finished off a number of meetings and successful deals in Mumbai and now it was time to go to the airport to catch his plane back to, I think it was Europe somewhere. And so he got the taxi driver, and this was in Mumbai, big city, lots of taxi drivers were there. And you'd think the taxi driver would know the way to the airport, but this fellow driving the taxi did not really know the way. He said he knew the way. He was one of these uh, poor people from the village, you know, trying to earn a few dollars driving taxis. So, the gentleman just sat in the back and the taxi driver went off, getting completely lost and all the road signs said, this is the way to the airport. He said, no, this is a shortcut. I never like shortcuts, even in meditation. If you say, oh, you don't need to do jhanas, there's a shortcut. I will never believe that. It's always waste much more time. And that happens so many times in my life, because I don't uh, drive the car, someone else does and says, let's go this way, it's a shortcut. And it always takes so much longer. So anyway, I don't agree with shortcuts, but anyway, that was a good excuse, the taxi driver who didn't know the way. So they're wasting so much time in Mumbai. And they really looked like he was going to miss his flight. But most of the flights, you know, from Bombay Airport at the time were always late. You know, like there was a cow on the runway or something like that. <laughs> if you've been to Bombay, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, so he was hoping that the flight would be delayed 
so he could get on the flight. And then as he approached the airport, in sight of the airport, he saw his plane take off. It was a KLM, I think. He saw it sort of take off, he was that close to the airport. And as he saw it take off, oh, he really unloaded at the taxi driver. You stupid man, you idiot, you incompetent nincompoop, or whatever. You know, much worse words than that, but I am a monk, so I cannot <laughs> repeat what he said. <laughs> And anyway, he was saying, you made me miss my plane, getting connections is going to be really impossible, you stupid idiot. And as he was watching through the window, it's a true story, he saw the plane come down and crash, and all people on board were killed. He actually saw it. You wonderful taxi driver. <laughs> oh, I love you, you're so smart. Here, take a tip, take the whole wallet. Your lateness saved my life. And that's actually a true story. And he told me it. And it was just amazing that sometimes we always want to get there on time. Do you? You just want to get there. If it's a bit late, it doesn't matter. You'll get there sometime. And sometimes when things go wrong in life, and you, you're delayed, you get there late, you get some really interesting experiences. So that's one of the reasons why if you get delayed or laid, you're not on time. Well done. Anyway, just a little story to start you off. Huh. So, uh, yesterday I was talking a little bit about insight. And uh, today I'm going to go deeper into insight and sometimes what I call deep insight. This morning it was like insight in how you can live a more helpful life, a more peaceful life. That's very important because when I go on the deep factors, say, oh, that's a bit much for me. But the ordinary life, and it's amazing. All oh, these satyrs, how come as a monk? You know, all these amazing stories just on how couples can get together and be happy in their marriages. And some of those stories that just go so deeply into the nature of any community. So like one of those stories, and it comes up right now, is of um, when people get married. First of all, I did this. Actually, whenever I do it, you know it now, I think, so it's not going to work so well with you. When this couple get married, it's one time they really always listen to you. They're serious. Sometimes you give talks, and the only other time that people really listen to you is at funeral services, because they have to. And a marriage also. They're really paying really full attention. And so I look into the bride's eyes. This young woman just starting off her married life together to with this guy. And I say, in marriage, you must never, ever think of yourself. It's like as a Buddhist. You should never think of yourself. Do I think of myself? I just give a lot to you guys and girls. So as a, when you are, are getting married, you must never think of yourself. Look at the guy too, you must not think of yourself. I'm not sure if this is the same in Singapore, 
But in Australia, when you say that, the, the girl always says, yes, yes, yes. And the guy always pauses, first of all. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Eventually he says yes. And then you tell the, um, the woman, the bride, and once you are married, you must never think of him, your husband. I love the result when I say that. And you, the husband, from this day on, must never think of her, your wife. They respect me, but often they think I've gone cuckoo or something. What do you mean? I must never think of the woman I just married or the guy I just married. And you always pause. You don't give the kind of punchline or the answer straight away. I said, in a marriage you must never think of yourself, you must never think of your partner, you must only think of us. You're in it together. It's a third option again, which I just don't understand why people don't see from the very beginning. And if it's any problem, whose problem is it? Our problem. If ever you think it's his problem, what did I marry him for? Or think it's your problem, then the marriage is just in trouble. Always our problem, we fix it together. And that's a lovely thing to be able to do. So those are like the worldly wisdoms, good insights, and they're worth a lot, they save a lot of problems. But then it's also you've got the, the insights, the deep insights, which come from deep meditation. So, I'm now going to talk about those deep meditations. Uh, so we start with the story of the jhanas, the right stillness. This is empowering your mind, making it strong, deep and perceptive. It starts with, from the Satchika Sutta, I remember a time when my father was occupied, this is the Buddha talking, while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, having passed beyond the five senses, he was just a young kid at the time, and free from unwholesome states, I entered and abided in the first jhana. I thought, this is the Buddha recollecting, I thought, could that be the path to awakening, Bodhi? Then the realization arose, that jhana is indeed the path to awakening. And that was the first insight which the Buddha got, as a young kid, realizing, that's actually not as a kid, because at the time he didn't realize that it was the path to awakening. As a young man who tried so many other things, and then uh, he remembered as a kid sitting under the rose apple tree and getting to this deep experience. And it wasn't just for the pleasure of it. He thought, is this the way? And the realization arose that jhana is indeed the path to awakening. And it's a nice word, the awakening. It's as if like your brain is asleep or tired. Have you ever woken up first thing in the morning and you know, actually this happens to me quite a lot because I travel around so much. I wake up and my first thought is, what city am I in today? 
<laughs> it's true. So tomorrow, no, not yeah. I don't know where I will be. No, I will be here tomorrow morning. But on Monday morning, I'll be in an aircraft when I wake up. On Tuesday morning, I'll be in London. And then you come back again and have to start all over again, trying to figure out where in the heck you are. It doesn't really matter. Because I really, deep down, I always know where I am. I'm here. <laughs> so some, sometimes, even a long time ago, the nuns at Dharmasara asked me, are you going to be here next week? I said, yes, I'm here next week. Oh, they said, can we come and visit you? Well, I'll be in London. <laughs> next week, that's what here means for me. I'm always here. <laughs> so sometimes they change the words. They say, are you going to be around next week? <laughs> I'm always around. <laughs> I get fed up with me. So anyway, they're stuck with me, so I've been here too long. <laughs> so could that be the path to awakening? Realization arose that is the path to awakening. That feeling of you can actually see and hear and, and feel and know. Just like you woke up from a stupor, you come out from the fog, you can see. So now, the definition of the four jhanas, their explanation. Uh, having abandoned the five hindrances, and that's an important part of understanding what these four jhanas are. The five hindrances, you know what they are? What are they? <laughs> okay. That's right. What's sloth and torpor? We use these really weird English words, which no one else uses these days, like restlessness and remorse. You kind of understand what that means, but sometimes it's more helpful to put it in your own words and ways. So the first hindrance is like wanting. Second hindrance is like the negativity. The third hindrance is, third hindrance, it's interesting, they put this uh, first, the, uh, they call it sloth and torpor, but just tiredness. I like the idea of tiredness because you know what the cause is. And then that cause is, you do too much, you push yourself too hard. You don't have enough rest at night. And sometimes, I don't know if you noticed this morning that during the, my talk, I was really quite tired. That's one of the reasons why I went on a bit long. But after lunch, I came back and had a nice nap. And as soon as you wake up, you feel much more energy. That's one of the great antidotes to sloth and torpor. Having a sleep. The reason was, there's nothing wrong, I wasn't indulging. Just I said to you that I had so much energy yesterday and it went on to the evening, so I never slept enough last night. I caught up after lunch, which is nice. That's the best antidote to sloth and torpor. So your mind feels rested and energized, you're ready to go. And sometimes I have said to a few of you, 
if you're in a very busy job? Why don't you have a place in your office or in your uh, any place of work where you can go and just meditate for 15 minutes, sit in there and relax? Every office in Singapore has such a place. It's called the restroom. And it doesn't matter who you are, you can go into that restroom, go in one of the cubicles, sit down, and your, your boss will, will not criticize you. If they say you've been in the restroom too long, then tell them the truth. You were constipated. Mental, don't say mentally, but that was the truth of it. You deserve that peace and quiet because you become a much better a worker afterwards. So that's one of the reasons why that it's important to, you know, to understand you awake well, after you've meditated or rested. Much more so than maybe any other method. And when you are awake, this is something which I, I notice. In the old days, I just I needed some business to be done. I just write a letter by hand. And that's where my handwriting became quite neat. Now, especially when you were doing meditation. You know that, okay, this story. Opening the door of your heart. That first book which I wrote. The reason why I wrote it was that in this Armadale group where I would teach, you know, once a week, this lady came up and she said, you know, your stories have really helped me through a difficult separation with my partner. Thank you. They really should be put in a book. And I said, no, I'm too busy to write. You know, you know all the duties you have. At that time, it wasn't busyness, it was more laziness. And then what she said next was, okay, then I'll do it. So she wrote out a few of those stories and handed it to me. And it was terrible. Her English and her use of the phrases was just, oh, I wouldn't even read it. So I said to her, I'd better do it. That's how she tricked me. <laughs> so I started writing it. But incredibly, that I was doing a retreat at the time, having a personal retreat, and I started writing those stories, and I just said one hour a day, max. And I kept to that rule. And I just didn't type them out, wrote them out by hand. Because I you know, couldn't type, didn't have a computer in those days. So anyway, I typed them out, I wrote them out by hand, just one hour a day. And after, I think, the 13 days of the retreat, I didn't work on the first or the last day, 13 days, I think it was, I had completed half the book. The stories just flowed. And I got the original manuscript. I think you may have seen it. Sometimes I auction it. And then, out of compassion, they give it back to me. But I don't really want to auction that anymore because it's it really should be in a library. It's like perfect handwriting. And people ask me, 
Now, what font is that? I've never seen that font on Microsoft or whatever else you have. And it's Ajahn Brahm original font. It was handwritten. And the fact there's hardly any mistakes in it. That even makes me think, wow, how did that happen? I know how it happened, because you were meditating, getting some really nice deep meditation. When you did that hour of writing, it just literally just flowed smoothly. It had lots of energy, you can see just how the story should unfold. And it just all came out so gorgeously. And that was just half the book written in 13 days, just one hour a day. And then I waited for a while, and then I did the other stories in the other half of the book. It was so easy, you know, when your mind is still. You get so much more energy, clarity. Anyway, of course, you can't just publish the handwritten copy. So then what happened, and this is no exaggeration again, I got somebody to type it out. And those days, is one of those CD discs. And it took them a long time, actually much longer than me writing it out. And then uh, I was going to Melbourne University to give a talk, and they just gave it to me about an hour before I left Perth to go into the airport to get the flight. And I just put it in my bag, just put it in there. And I didn't know where to go with it. Honestly, this happened. At Melbourne University, I gave my talk, and after the talk was finished, this woman came up to me. I never forget her name, because it was just a weird name. Magnolia Flora. F-L-O-R-A. Really strange flowery name. I just was really amazed I didn't sneeze, because I do have hay fever. <laughs> And she said, that's a nice talk you gave. If She said, I work in the publishing industry. If ever you want a book published, can I sort of have a look at it first? And all I did, reached into my bag, took out, here you are. <laughs> she didn't know me. No, I didn't ask her to come. It just happened like that. A few years, la a few years later, and I saw her again. Now, after a while, she left the company because she got cancer. And it was just, you know, she thought she was going to die. But that book, which she helped publish, she said saved her life. It wasn't just a very good karma of publishing it, because she read it as well. And many of the stories were just so important to her. So she came up to say, thank you. And there's a nice, beautiful ending to that story. I didn't need to look for a publisher. They looked for me and I just had it in my bag the first day I had it. So it's nice if you can publish books like that. <laughs> and anyway, but the reason why it was just um, easy to write was because of the, the uh, mindfulness was just so strong after deep meditation. So, having abandoned the five hindrances, it's the hindrances which like, cloud the mind. So, you know, you can't really see what's really happening there. You miss too much. And you miss a lot of joy and happiness as well, which I'm really emphasizing on this retreat. So, uh, having abandoned the five hindrances, 
totally free from the five senses. Now that's something which the Hindu tradition knows about meditation. The five senses just um, stop. They just turn off, they're not needed. And those are the really lovely times. When the five senses are gone, it's so much more freedom. And one of the insights you get, which I mentioned earlier on, five senses are gone, it's like you're dead. Of course, you're not dead. You're having a wonderful time, but it gives you the insight of what it's like to die. And the senses, the five senses, just they're not active. They've all been quelled. Even when you sleep, it's not quite the same because people toss and turn. They're still not really that um, uh, comfortable. And you're always available for this noise to wake you up in the middle of the night. How many of you wake up because of you know, noise somewhere? Something, the wind just rattles the steel roof. But anyway, in those deep meditations, you can't hear anything. One of these guys, okay, another story. One of the uh, supporters, it was the reason I'm saying this, it was the fellow who typed out the manuscript for opening the door of your heart. He used to be in the British Army uh, in his early years. And he came across some conflict, I think it was in Aden, and he was just that really, even though he was close to retirement, he just couldn't stand it anymore. It was very, very dangerous. So he just uh, retired. But he said when he was in the uh, British Army that he would have these terrible migraines. And the only way to deal with the migraines in those days was actually to go into a dark place, close his eyes, and go to a place deep inside of him where the migraines couldn't reach. That's how he described it. So he was in this um, exercise with other British soldiers in Germany, you know, post-war. And so uh, they had the opportunity to have a break, have a cup of tea. He had a bad migraine at the time, and he said, I'm just going into this nearby shed just to sit in there. All the other soldiers you know, knew what he was up to because he did this regularly. So he went into the shed and closed his eyes and went deep inside. But apparently, while he was still in there, the order came over the radio. It was an exercise. He had to be ready for anything. You have to move now. Get in the truck and go to this location. So all the soldiers got in the truck and they went to this location before they realized that they'd left him in the shed. We'd forgotten about him. So they turned around, they found the shed, opened the door. He was still sitting so silently. They picked him up and put him in the back of the truck. I questioned on, on this. He said, yeah, this happened. He was on the back of the truck and five minutes later he opened his eyes. Where am I? I was in a shed. Now I'm in a truck. And then he realized that what had happened, when he, because of the migraine, he had to get into this deep state of meditation where he couldn't feel the five senses. It was actually a jhana state. He never realized it because no one had told him that before. And even though British soldiers, who are not the most delicate and sensitive of people, when they picked him up and they dumped him in the back of the truck, he didn't feel a thing. He was still peaceful inside. And that's where he realized the power of these 
deep meditations, you're totally free from the five senses and free from the unwholesome states, the five hindrances. And you enter upon abide in the first jhana, we're in the mind. Now this is where some people disagree with me, but I hold my ground on this. Wherein the mind moves onto the object, I won't say what the object is yet, it's coming soon, and holds onto it. The object being the joy and pleasure caused by being totally free from the five senses. Like just when you die. It's a very pleasant state. Dying, the path into death, is unpleasant for most people. But when you get to that point of death, it's so beautiful and peaceful. So, and that's similar to what happens in the jhanas. And it's even happy just beforehand. So there's one thing which many people say, and a few of you have asked me this, it's an important point, especially when you sort of counsel other Buddhists who are dying. They say the last thought is really important. That's not so accurate. Because there is no last, a single thought. Death is a process. And so it's like the last thoughts. And if you've been with someone who's dying, it takes many minutes until all their faculties turn off. So it's literally the last thoughts. And so sometimes people say, because they're Buddhists, they don't want any medication to stop their pain. They don't want any morphine. And they really suffer, you know, physically before they pass away. And they think they have to do that because it gives them more control of their last thought. Does it? If you've been in such pain and difficulty, your last thought will often be uh, with lots of negativity, lots of sloth and torpor, tiredness, because you're exhausted. So I'm very strong on this. If you are hurting, or say it's your your brother or mother or something in the bed and they can hardly breathe and they really are struggling to survive, then any nurse or doctor wants to give them morphine, yes, take that. Because what happens is just a few minutes, a few seconds before death, the morphine stops the reactions in the brain. When the brain stops, that's when the death happens. The mind is still there, the mind is clear. And the mind, what it's been doing all its life, that is where you will get the peace and the ability to have a good thought in the end. A good example of that, I may, some of you may have heard this story because it's in one of the books about this Sri Lankan man. <laughs> you know all my stories. But it's a good story anyway. This Sri Lankan man, he, would only, he was what we call uh, in Buddhism a Vaisak Buddhist. Which means he'd only go to the temple on Vaisak day. The rest of the year he'd be in his shop making money. So there he was, sort of being dragged to the temple again by his wife. It's Waysak day, you have to go, oh, okay, fair enough. So he went to the Waysak ceremony 
and just gave some dana to the monks and made a donation. And he said, oh, let's get back to the shop quickly. But then he heard one of the monks give a sermon. And the sermon was on the last thoughts before you die. He said, if you have some very good thoughts just before you die, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. And he got interested. Because the monk said, some of the best thoughts to have is thoughts about Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So he started thinking. I think what he said, I think I can beat the system. <laughs> so he went back home and he said, I don't need to go to the temple ever again, not even on Waisak Day. What I'm going to do, he had three sons. He went to the lawyer and renamed them. The eldest son he called Buddha, the second son Dhamma, and the third son Sangha. Because you know your children will be with you on your deathbed. That's their job. They have to be there. And his plan worked perfectly. He never went to the temple ever again. He just was in his shop, just making money. And then at his deathbed, his three sons were there, and he kept looking on the, upon them, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, I'm going to heaven. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, uh, it works. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And you know what it's like when you're thinking, even when you're not thinking, when you're trying to meditate. You know, some thoughts just pop up into your mind. And the thought which popped up into his mind was, if my three sons, Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, were by my bedside, who's looking after my shop? <laughs> and that's when he died. <laughs> so you can't really control your last thought, just decide to do a good thought at the end. It's what's been happening for the rest of your life, especially what's been happening just recently. Those thoughts come up. So anyway, so it's okay just taking medication just to the very end because just before you pass away your brain will turn off and the mind will be clear and that is what is most important. That's where the last thought will be really important. The, what do I call it? It's, it's not what I call it, what's called terminal lucidity. Uh, in the first jhana, five things are absent and five factors are present. This is actually how you know what it was. The f in the first jhana, the five hindrances are totally absent. And what is present, the mind moves on, on I didn't explain this all that well yet, moves on to the object, holds on to it, the object being joy and pleasure, and there is oneness of mind. The joy and pleasure in these states are just so uh, ecstatic, you know, that the problem is with the first jhana, the person actually grasps it too tightly. And because of the grasping, it destroys the stillness and you move away from it. But it's so strong, it attracts you in straight away. So it's what I call the wobble of that first jhana. You don't lose it totally. It just, it's not, say, secure. The confidence is caused by letting go. You're kind of letting go, but not enough. And that causes the wobble in the first jhana. 
when the mind, but you don't, some people call it thinking. This is Vitaka Vichara. And honestly, it just, that makes no sense to call this, uh, what is it, applied and sustained thought. Thinking is really quite coarse, as I think you know. And when there is silence, it's much more profound. Having thinking in jhana, goodness gracious, no. So it's the movement of the mind, subverbal, with the vitaka vichara. They use some words in one way in some uh, contexts, and words in a different way in other contexts. That's a problem of translations. Anyway, while the mind no, when the mind no longer moves onto the object because it lets go of holding onto it, it doesn't need to grasp it. You're going to stay there anyway. So you just relax that just a little bit more. You enter upon and abide in the second jhana, which has trust in the object, the bliss, enough to let go of holding it. So Pali word, Sampasadana, is a legitimate rendering of that word, and in this context it makes the best sense. Uh, which has trust in the object, the bliss, enough to let go of holding it. Trust is such an important word. I love that word. I've said that many times to anagarikas and to monks and novices, and to you, I trust you. Sometimes I thought of putting CCTV cameras in every Anagarika's room, and the monks as well, to find out what they're up to at night. <laughs> of course you don't do that. Do I do that here in Janagov? Are you sure? <laughs> of course I would never do that. Because... Trust is such an important quality. You have to give and prove. So you realize when you have that trust, you're going to make mistakes, but I allow you to make mistakes. You learn from mistakes. You don't punish mistakes. You become a better human being because of mistakes. And you don't have this terrible fear that you're being controlled or assessed. So in this case, you can see its uh, uh, result. You have trust in the object, the bliss, enough to let go of holding it. And the unity of mind without any movement or holding. That is where the mind really starts to become one. You're not moving onto the object and out of it again, you're really in it. And it's sometimes that unity of the mind. You're not watching it from a distance. You're not separated from it, you're right inside it. It's like a oneness. And with joy and pleasure caused by absolute stillness. It's weird experiences going through the jhanas because you go to the first jhana and you think, wow, this ecstasy. When you come out afterwards, this was immense. And then you go to the second jhana and that's more immense. It's like, you know, when you walk up mountains, you think you're going up this highest mountain, you get to the top, and you think, you've arrived, I made it, on the highest mountain in the world. And then from the top mountain, you can see there's another mountain, even higher, <laughs> just a short distance away. And 
uh, with the fading away of joy, the pity, it just fades away. It's not you just decide, I'm in the second jhana now, now I can go to the third. You can't do that, there's no will. It's just a natural opening of the lotus flower. It's just like I said this morning, you don't have to exercise the will. May I move to the second, from the second jhana to the third jhana? You stay in the second jhana long enough and something fades away and you go deeper in, like zooming in and Google Maps or like with a lotus flower opening. After a while, that uh, flower petal you've been watching for a while, which is gorgeous, opens up and it's something even more gorgeous inside. And that's a nice thing to remember because if you think you have to do something, that is far too coarse for this jhana realms. It's a natural unfolding. So when the fading away of joy, you abide abide mindful and fully aware, experiencing a bliss purified from joy. It's a weird statement, isn't it? You think the more joy you have, the more blissful it is. But the joy is a coarser part of that happiness. And now that's gone, it's much more pure. You enter upon abiding the third jhana, on account of which the noble ones announce one has a pleasant abiding indeed, who has such mindfulness and equanimity. And the reason why that statement is important, because some people, they have this idea that in these jhanas, you are just zoned out in a trance, you're not mindful at all. In these jhanas, you're more mindful than you've ever been ever before. And this equanimity, this deep sense of peace and stillness. But even so, the equanimity is not perfect yet. Having abandoned pleasure and pain, it's almost like a summary of here, of all the previous three jhanas. All the Vedana from the five senses, pleasure and pain, before entering the jhana. And with the disappearance of joy and unhappiness, that is the Vedana from the sixth sense, except for equanimity. You enter upon and abide in the fourth jhana, which has only this neutral mental Vedana remaining, which is pure mindfulness with equanimity. I mentioned the purity of it. That's the highest state of mindfulness that you can experience, the fourth jhana. It's not got any... uh, hindrances or stains on it. Just pure mindfulness. This wonderful equanimity. And sometimes people think, oh my goodness, there's no happiness there. It's another type of happiness. And and that's when with the fading away of these other things, it's a more subtle happiness. It's highly enjoyable being in the fourth jhana. Using that word, it's not joy, sense of pity or sukha, it's just still extremely pleasant. Though anyway, that was the description of these things. And what kind of meditation did the Buddha recommend? Just after the, um, the Buddha passed away, that was when um, Ananda became like the spokesperson he spent all his life with the Buddha, and especially the last 25 years, you know, was his, his attendant, 
and so had seen much and heard much. And so this uh, lay person, Gopaka Moggallana, came up to him and asked him this question. What kind of meditation did the Buddha recommend? Was it Samatha or Vipassana? You know what Ananda replied? Totally free from the five senses, you abide in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. That is what the Buddha recommended. That's actually very powerful. That's really closer, so it's not fully. Okay, so a um, typo there. And oh, I've mentioned this already. There are chunda, the four kinds of life devoted to pleasure, entirely conducive to enlightenment. And the next little paragraph about the importance of jhana in this path. This is. Uh, Mahamogalana no, yeah, Sutta. I want to say a few words, more words about Mahamogalana. There is one path only, Ananda. One way to the abandoning of the first five fetters. This is what the Buddha said, what enlightenment is. No one arahat is, what a non-returner, once-returner, a, a stream winner, what they are. So it is his ten fetters. And the first fetter is uh, self-use, a kayaditi, thinking that there's some permanent essence somewhere in here, there's, that you own things. So that is totally abandoned uh, for the stream winning, together with uh, belief that rites and rituals by themselves can take you into nibbana, and also doubt. Those three things, they're like views, wrong views, are abandoned for the uh, stream winner. And for the next two, the once-returner and non-returner, they've abandoned the next two fetters, which is wanting, actually wanting pleasures of the five senses, and also the ill will, which comes when you get that wanting sort of frustrated, Karmachanda and Waipada. And those are abandoned by um, the non-returner. That's the third stage of enlightenment. And the other, I'll tell you what the other five fetters are in a moment. Those first five fetters, is only one way to abandon them. It is impossible that anyone can understand what they are yet alone abandon these five fetters without relying on that path. No more than it is possible to cut out the hardwood from a tree without first cutting through its bark and sapwood. Again, when I first heard that simile, I'm sure you do the same, to get the hardwood, the pith from a tree without going through the bark and sapwood. So there must be another way. Maybe we go through one of the twigs and just go inside with a... But basically there ain't. 
So the only way to, and the powerful part of this, you don't even know what these these fetters are until you've done these this particular way. Let alone being able to give them up. And of course, you know where that path is: the four jhanas. They also had the first three immaterial attainments, which are based on that fourth jhana. Now the next one, my um, notes on here, where these things come from, is all over the place, I must admit. Because this comes from the Nalakapana Sutta, which I got the Sutta out here, 68. And this is a powerful statement for what the Buddha said. When you still do not experience jhana, the five hindrances, together with discontent, this arati, and weariness, tandi, invade your mind and remain. But when you do experience a jhana, the five hindrances, discontent and weariness, do not invade your mind and remain. And that's one of the reasons why. If you have a deep meditation such as a jhana, you're high. The arati is just not there. Arati is like discontent. And that's again, I think I mentioned, if any of you come to me and say that you've just had a jhana, I'd often say, not you, impossible. I would try and see if there's any discontent left. If there's no discontent left, oh, fair enough. We all have our views, even if they're wrong views. Even Ajahn Brahm has wrong views. If I get upset back at you, you know that I haven't had a China recently. (laughs) The arati, this lack of uh, discontent still is there. And imagine, you just had a deep meditation and there's no discontent in you. Imagine how that feels. Whatever happens, if you stub your toe, it's only a toe. If it's cold and you're really chilled, that's really good. Because when it's cold, do you ever notice that when you put things in a refrigerator and it's cold, really cold, it extends its life, you don't go off. (laughs) So the colder it is, the longer you live. (laughs) and when it's hot you know it's much more comfortable and so you don't have to live so long which is nice (laughs) you get this positive mind today you can't help it because you've got no (laughs) you've got no discontent and the other thing the weariness the tandy have you ever really been weary no reason. You haven't got chronic fatigue syndrome or anything. We just another retreat, another evening of Q and A, same old jokes, same old stories. That kind of mental weariness and physical weariness just disappears. You've got energy. You've got to watch out when I have energy, because I get too chirpy and tell silly jokes all day have a wonderful time, but then can't sleep at night 
and tired the next day. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, so that's amazing. You do need those deep meditations and that means the doors to enlightenment are open. And also, you have this wonderful feeling of no hindrances and no discontent or weariness. And the other thing, and I say this because some of you do get nice meditations, and when you do get a nice meditation, and you realize just, you know, there's no hindrances left for a while, and there's no weariness, there's no discontent, that's when it's really useful to see if you can remember your past lives. It's not that hard a thing to do. What you do, you've had past lives, haven't you? So you've had them, so it's just learning how to remember them. So what you do, you ask yourself, what's my earliest memory? So you do that after a deep meditation. And the mind is just so obedient. Is your mind obedient? Sometimes you tell it, don't think. You know, be quiet. Now give loving kindness to all beings. But then you say, not all beings. That being, no way. Well, <laughs> <laughs> when you've had a deep meditation, you can't help it. It's all beings, may they be happy and well. It's just what you do. And so you say to us, what's my earliest memory? And it will come up straight away. The simile I gave is like in the old days you had a dog and it's well trained, go and fetch the newspaper and the dog will go over there and get the newspaper and bring it back to you. <gasps> what does the dog do? I forget, I should be able to... Pat, oh, yeah, pat. <laughs> but they're always so obedient. And that's like your mind. Go and fetch me a past memory. It goes away and brings one back to you straight away. And they're fascinating. That really gives you some insight, which is, does change your life. I remember this Westerner who came here and he was telling us the story of when he remembered an early life. Because, you know, he, we, he knew us and he trusted us. So, because some of you, if you tell your early life, People think you're crazy, especially in sort of Australia. And he was also in the Navy Reserve. He told his friends they would really think he was, was mad. And anyway, once he remembered his previous life with all the details, checked them up, they were real. And then one thing which happened to him was he was always a Buddhist, but now he had to keep the five precepts. He said, I just, I just can't drink alcohol. I just can't do it, no matter what. It was really fascinating. He said, that was because of the memory of my previous life. Anyway. He remembered where his grave is. He was buried. And it's down in Albany with his name of his previous life. Imagine that. You know, who you are. Ai Ling, whoever you were in your previous life, you go visit your old gravestone. That's really cool. <laughs> you remember the name of his wife. You found the marriage certificate. 
you know, in the library in Perth. He remember where he lived before. Where he lived before was in Mount Barker, which is just north of Albany. It was in a uh, like a farm, uh, and he built the house, a stone house, in his previous life for his family. And you can imagine he came from such. A, it's where he was born, was in Ireland. You know, just parents with so many children. His only way to get ahead was you know, to join the, the British Raj in Australia. He hated the Brits. It was the only way to get a life. So he came out here and eventually got a, a block of land, built his first stone house, and he went to go and visit it. That was with Dennis. The two of them went down there. I'm really glad Dennis went with them because when they approached the farmer, you know, if somebody goes in to an Australian farmer and says, I used to live here before, the farmer will probably shoot you with his, uh, or at least shoot over your heads and chase you away. They're not really that accommodating. But Dennis is just such a nice guy and he can just talk so uh, peacefully and calmly. And so you know, he taught the farmer into letting them in. And he said that, you know, we know where that first house was built. And so the farmer took them to it. And that's when the person who remembered his previous life said, this is not where the foundations were of my previous house. It was up there on the hill. And that was an important part of the story because the farmer got really embarrassed. No, this is it. No, it is not. I was here. I built it. You know, about a hundred years ago. And the farmer just, that convinced the farmer this was real. Because it was a first stone house built in that area. And it was as heritage value. You're not supposed to destroy it at all. But it was a good farmland and the, the farmer just bulldozed it over. No one would know. And of course, the farmer never expected the builder who died many years ago, would actually come and see him <laughs> in his next life and find out he was wrong. This was his stone house. Things like that. But it's fascinating what it does to you. It gives you the big picture of what life is. And it makes it weird. It makes it kind of interesting why you do the things that you do. It gives you extra information. Why you intend to, for this and not for that? Dennis has some amazing stories about things like that. Just, uh, just trying to think of one of the best ones. Now I'll just tell you this other story instead. One of our members who followed this uh, method remembered a previous life. She actually an early life. In this life. She remembered uh, her mother when she was first born, breastfeeding her. And so you know, this was an earliest memory of her life, of this life, and her mother was uh, feeding her and she looked up at her mother and she was shocked. This was not her mum, it was somebody else. And she was so... Um, surprised and disturbed. She came to see me in the interview and said, look, I had this experience, it was real. 
I don't think my mother is my real mum. And I know her mum, she's come to the temple too. And I told her, just please, next time you see your mother after the retreat, ask her, you know, in a nice way. It's hard really to ask your mother, are you my real mum? <laughs> but that's what she did. And her mother said, of course I was your mother. Why are you asking such silly questions? And then she told this story. And the mother was really interested, not offended. What did that woman look like? And, you know, because it's, you know, when the five hindrances are gone, you have almost perfect memory. You remember it so clearly. So she described this woman breastfeeding her when she was a baby to her mother, and her mother was, wow, that really is amazing. That's a really good description of your wetness. You came from a wealthy family. We hired a wet nurse to feed you. And that's a really good description of who she was. How can you do that? You know, you're just a few weeks old at the time. It shows you just these things can actually unveil a lot of interesting information. Can you show your previous slide? No, it's just five o'clock now. <laughs> <laughs> You know I've shared the early life memories. That's as far as I can go without breaking my precepts. The Buddha said, telling other people, lay people about your previous life does actually break the precepts. He said, keep those things quiet. You can tell other monks, especially teachers, but no one else. But anyway, you know it's possible, and this is how you do it. You don't need to doubt so much. This is what happens. It's fascinating. Even that early life memory, one thing I did uh, figure out, the insight which came to me from that, was just that hindrance of um, doubt. I could never understand what that was. Now, doubt, what is it? You can try and explain it by words, but once you experience something, you just know this was real, this was true. That memory was, you can check it out as much as you like, but every time you check it out, you find out the evidence is absolutely 100% accurate. The hindrance of doubt is no longer there. And you know what that feels like. I don't think I'm good enough in language to describe it in words. But if you get a past life memory or an early life memory, you can actually um, know what the absence of doubt feels like. Okay. So those are the sutta classes, they're not quite the same as Ajahn Brahmali does, but I do quite a lot of suttas, but more Ajahn Brahm. So I apologize for that. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.